Welcome to Word is Truth. This is Doug Presley. We're continuing where we left off. We are resuming where we left off. It is 12-4-2022. So where we are in our outline is John 17, 20 through 23. And we're in point number two. We were just rehearsing to be, in fact. The term one is described for us. Uh, and so we are not uh, given freedom to create whatever interpretation we want. We can't make up our own as we are. God tells us what it means to be one. Just as, in the same way as, you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. That is a lot of description to describe what it means for us to be one. That all of them may be one. And that's important. Point C, the same relationship displayed by Jesus and the Father uh, <clears throat> would be the standard for everyone in the church, positionally with the opportunity to be experiential. So we covered this to some extent. We, we did discuss the spiritual life of everyone in the church. We all have this spiritual life. That is one thing to note. We're not a nation. We're not Israel. We're not under the law. You know, we could talk about some of the things Israel did have as a part of what distinguished them. They had special laws related to their civil life, their social life, their spiritual life, uh, their civil, all, all of the things related to the law, uh, which would address their dietary restrictions, everything were specific to those Jews. Uh, their worship on the Sabbath, God, the Sabbath was given to, to Israel as a special nation. So all of this, it, those are distinguishing marks that you could say follow Israel. The distinguishing markers that would follow the church, I wonder what would people say? Uh, we could ask Jesus and he tells us what they are here. And um, not all of them, but we have a good understanding even before the church age began what would be the spiritual identifiers for who we are. And he gives them right here in this verse and, and in the next ones too. So this oneness, and he doesn't leave it to us to explain. He says, here's what it is. And so I said it has positional with the opportunity for it to be experiential just as most other things in the church righteousness right we are positionally god we are imputed the righteousness of god but we are also we have the opportunity i should say also to walk in righteousness god the holy spirit will teach us how to behave righteously while we're here in this world positionally we are already righteous experientially the Holy Spirit will work with us on an individual basis on how to walk according to that righteousness. So, um, so does this oneness, right? We have positional aspect. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are living inside of me. That's positionally. It is the truth. It's the reality. Experientially, I may not be walking according to those realities, but the opportunity is for me to walk according to the truth that is in Christ. Most of it is not me walking, it's me getting out of the way so that Christ can live inside me and do, do his thing. So th we covered that last week a little bit, but uh, you know, I just wanted to mention in, in the way of review. Point number three. And this is verse 22. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So not only do we have the spiritual life of Jesus. Right? We can talk about that and how the Father is in me and Christ is in me and the Holy Spirit sets up my body, indwells my body, makes it a temple so that they can dwell inside. And then uh, we have this statement. He has given us the glory that the Father gave to Christ. Now, part of our 
as we talked about the spiritual identifiers or markers that we have in the church, is now this glory. We have not only the oneness, but this glory. And I don't know how well the Christian world responds or explains what this glory is, but it is important to us. It was important enough for it to get mentioned in these words of Christ before he is departing this life. And that one, that glory goes all the way back to where if you look at John 17 and look at verse 5, he says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began, which this is a profound verse. It is not a verse necessarily directed to us, but it is about what the plan is and Christ's work in establishing the plan. And this this is a, I call it achievement glory because Christ is recognizing that he finished the work, verse four, that was given him to do. And now he says, this work was we discussed this in the plan before the world began. And now he's saying, since I finished the work, now the glory will follow. And I, I also mentioned, I, used, I, I coined a phrase, it's glory time. So, you know, in verse 10, we also get this glory mentioned again. He's, Christ says, all I have is yours. And all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. Excuse me. So the glory that comes to Christ, but it's through us. In other words, the fact that Christ is bringing many sons into glory, this is the glory that Christ is talking about in verse 5. When he says, now give me the glory I had with you before the world began. Well, well, obviously there was no world to talk about anything. So what was there? It was nothing but the plan. The plan to bring creation in, uh, into existence and the plan to bring many sons into glory through that creation. So we are a part of the glory that was spoken of in verse 5. Because that was the plan. And Christ is saying, and glory has come to me through them. So, so we are there. We receive this achievement glory. And then if we skip down to verse 23, there it is. I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Uh, then the world will know. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 22. I have given them, that's what I was looking for, the glory that you gave me. Okay, there it is. John 17, 5, John 17, 10. And glory has come to me through them. So this glory that we have now, think about it, is a part of what the Father planned from eternity past for us. So when we look at that verse in Ephesians 1, 4, where it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. There it is again. I have given them the glory you gave me. Then it says that they may be one as we are one. So part of the, as I said, those identifiers about the Father indwelling each person in the church, not some people, each person in the church has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling them. And there is special oneness that we have as a result of that. Or we should say it the reverse. The oneness that we have results in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit indwelling us. So we call that mutual possession. Why do we say that, mutual possession? Because... um, Christ displayed what this would look like on the ground. So if we want to know, well, what does it mean exactly? Right? We could say, oh, well, that means the Father's in you and you're in the Father and, and the Holy Spirit. We could say all that. 
But if we ask the question, well, what exactly does it look like? Christ says, I, I'm going to show you because I'm, I'm doing it right now. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. He was living that as he was talking to the disciples. John 14 is the best example of that. He says, you know the Father. And Philip said, we don't, what do you mean we know him? Right? So, so Jesus says, you know the way and the place where I am going. Thomas said, we don't know the way. Right? Where are you going? So how can we know the way? And then he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. Because why? It was the father? It was the father in Christ. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Which prompts Philip to ask the classic question, Lord, show us the father and then that will be enough for us. So Jesus is insistent on this point. Don't you know me, Philip? He didn't say, don't you know the father, Philip? He said, don't you know me? Because if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So he addressed both of those points. He, you, not only, he says, not only do you know him, but you, not only have you seen him, but you have known him. And in both instances, there it is. The Father is manifesting in the person of Christ. He is walking in the person of Christ, even to the extent, he says, even the words I'm saying to you are not my words. They're the Father's words. The works that I'm doing are not from me doing those works. It's the Father doing the work. He was insistent. Not only, he wasn't saying, well, I want you to believe this philosophical point about how it, I think of things. No, he's telling you literally, believe me when I say, this is verse 14, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So we're talking about the experience of mutual possession. The Father was experiencing life here on earth. He was, he was doing his thing. He was teaching. He was doing the works. He was, you know, he was in Christ reconciling the world so the father was in christ he was he, he had presence in the world whereas he's invisible but now the father has presence in the image christ is the image of the invisible god he has presence by virtue of christ allowing him to live his life the father live his life through christ and then what does Christ have as a result of that? He has access to the Father, right? Everything that belongs to the Father is mine. Well, what is everything that belongs to the Father? What can Christ fully possess that the Father has? His plan. That's what uh, Jesus has as a result of the Father. And this is why Jesus says it in John 16, 15, <clears throat> where he says, all that, <clears throat> all that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me and he will, what he will make known to you. So, so everything that Christ had, he had as a result of the Father. And that was the Father's plan. That's the result of Jesus being in the Father. The Father being in Jesus, we just talked about that. Mutual possession. How can that work? It, it works through submission. The father had to give everything to the son. He had to, he had to hand everything over to the son. And he freely sacrificed. He didn't say, no, I have to be in control of everything. No, he says, no, Christ is Lord. He, it's his mind that we are, it is his image that we are being transformed into. And then what did Christ say? Christ says, I'm, it's not about me. It's going to be about the father. So everything the father his will, his plan, his purpose. I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'm not going to go look for what college I'm going to go to. I'm not going to go look for a wife. I'm not going to do go get a job. I'm, going, I'm not going to worry about all those things. It's the Father's plan that's manifesting in my life for me. He's completely surrendered himself. So both surrendered themselves to each other for the benefit of the Father's eternal purpose. 
So that we have to at least acknowledge that when we we talk about the glory. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. That everybody in the church age has this opportunity of mutual possession. And now, glory. What the Father wanted out of creation, the church age satisfies. And not only just this age, but those who receive the benefits of this age, right? The, all we talked about, the Spirit indwelling us forever and all that. We now have it. We have it all positionally, but we have the opportunity. Just like Christ was here in the world and, and, and the Father was in him and he says, the words that I'm speaking, are, we have that opportunity to now allow Christ to manifest in us, to speak through us, to do works through us just like Christ did when he was here in the Father. So it was displayed. The spiritual life was not, uh, we should say it was modeled for us while Christ was here on the ground. All right, so, so that glory is the satisfaction, the achievement of all that the Father had planned before time began. And he says that all of us, that in order that they may be one as we are one, He's explaining further what that oneness is, All right? So let's look at a few points in verse 22. Not, on, not, not only do we have the spiritual life of Jesus, but we also have the same achievement, glory, do him. So I've explained that, but there it is. I just wanted to document what we talked about. We have the same achievement, glory, do him. Now, why do I say do him? Because it's not all finished yet, right? The glory isn't just, uh, you know, Christ says, oh, the church age has begun. The glory is where the fullness of the church age is complete in the person of Christ. So when the Father planned this whole thing in the beginning, he knew that the church was coming. He knew we were coming into glory, but it is not complete until the till it's finished because the father what father, when father saw when he foreknew us and predestined us and he called us and he justified us and he glorified us he saw that group that's who he had in mind and that is uh, who these many sons are that are being brought into glory so that's point a Point B is by uniting us to Jesus in this unique way. What do I mean unique way? No other human being in the history of uh, mankind has had this way of being united to the person of Christ. No, it, it never happened. First of all, Christ wasn't revealed or manifested in the world in order for this to be a possibility. Then even after God, he directed everybody away from Israel and directed them toward the church. This is the new way right now. Obviously, Israel has a future, and that will happen later. But the baptism of the Spirit did not exist. This mechanic, mechanical way of taking us out of Adam and uniting us to the last Adam, who is also the Lord of glory. And that that uniqueness, so the properties that we had when we were in Adam, even though fallen, are and now we have the properties that we have in Christ, who is glorified. And he's the Lord from heaven. He's not the man that was made from the dust of the ground, but he is the Lord from heaven. So um, that's point B is, that's unique. The, by uniting us to Jesus in this unique way, Baptist, we share his victory, we share his accomplishments, and we share his destiny. All of that is a part of what we have in this age. Point C, the glory is given to Christ by the Father. It is shared with us from Jesus. So notice, I have given them the glory you gave me, right? That. Remember, it, it is not some glory that we have achieved. 
Like we we did something. All that we all that we did is believe. So it's in verse twenty. For those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and on me, and they also are going to get this glory. Right? All of that. All we did was believe. It is all about the position that we have in Christ. It is unique. It is unprecedented. Never before has any human being ever had such access or availability to these things. And now glory, this glory is not ours. It is ours by virtue of the fact that we are united to the person of Christ through the baptism of the Spirit, such that we now even share the glory that he has. There is no division that says, oh, wait a minute, this is Christ and all the glory belongs to him. Now, when it comes to salvation, that's what we have to say because we, we know we didn't do any of the work for salvation. But we share the benefits of the last Adam when it comes to salvation. We share his righteousness. We share his life. We share the fact that he, he was judged for all of our sins. That benefits us, right? So when it comes to this new information here what do we share we share glory we share the relationships that christ has with the father we share that and we share the glory that comes from this plan which is to bring many sons into glory so how do we get to this this glory did we achieve something did we did we um were we exceptionally good in this life? Did we fulfill? Did we take in the word of God to the point where God says, oh, well, I got to give them glory because of who they are. It is not about who we are. It's about who Christ is, the glory that he achieved, the position that he achieved, the relationships that he has. That's where we are, we are sharing I like it what Peter says. We are sharers together of the divine nature. It didn't say we have the divine nature, but we share because we're one with, with Christ and he has the divine nature. We share the divine nature. And that's Peter saying that straight up. So I don't know how in the world we could possibly not I mean, we there are no boundaries, is what I'm saying. There are no boundaries that are that God erected and said, okay, church, you're over here, but my son is over here. No. That's what the baptism of the Spirit did. It united us to the person of Christ, such that we not only share his life and all those things, right, his relationship, we also share the glory that he achieved. We did not achieve it. He achieved it. So that's unique to me. The glory is given to Christ by the Father. Christ asked for the glory back in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Well, how can he do that when he hadn't brought these many sons into glory yet? Because that's the plan that they talked about in verse 5 before the world began. Christ says the glory uh, in verse 10 he says, all I have is yours, all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. So that's how Christ is able to receive glory through us. It's glory time, as we say. So I hate to tell you guys where I got that glory time from, because then you won't be saying it anymore. But if you remember MC Hammer, what did he say? It was hammer time. <laughs> So, so I'm saying it's glory time. That's where, where God is bringing many sons into glory. Somebody just said I was corny. I know they did. Anyway, let's keep going. We're in point number four now. Point number four. And this is verse 23. So this is what it says. Uh, I'm going to read it. It says, I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete Unity, complete unity. So now, more information. It's almost like we never left verse 20 because we're still talking about the things that he's, he is building in this church. What is he building into it? What's he going to put into the church? All of the things that he just mentioned. That's who we are. What a time to be living 
in human history right now. What a time, we have to say. I mean, all this going on behind the scenes and not many people talking about it, unfortunately. I think we need to be the ones, if we know about it, to talk about it, right? Make sure you know about it before you try talking about it because a lot of people, will. there will be opposition. If you think people are op- opposing grace and you think, wow, that I can't believe the, the opposition when it comes to grace, wait till you open your mouth and say this. Right? People are going to be like, you're crazy. Now I know you're crazy that you are saying these things. Christ said, don't worry about it. The world's going to hate you. It, it, and just keep in mind, it hated me first. It, right? It's not about you. It's about me. If they hate you, it's because uh, of the things that I said and did that they're going to say, I hate you too. So I and them and you and me so that they may be brought, brought to complete unity. Or actually, that's the word oneness. That's the word for one. So let's look at these uh, points here. There's six of them. The indwelling of all, all, belie- all the members of the Trinity speaks of this oneness. So if you ask, who are we? First of all, we're not united to the person of Christ. We have the relationship with the Father such that he indwells us and we indwell him. And then we have this relationship with the Spirit to where he also indwells us, facilitating that other members of the Trinity are able to indwell us. And and then we have the ministries of the Spirit, which will be with us forever. The Spirit is not just some force. The Spirit is the eternal person of God. And we have him with us forever. That's a part of our age. No person no, uh, in, the, in the human race ever had that uh, asset as a part of their spiritual makeup. The Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament, as we've learned, for specific purposes. Some to build the temple, some prophets and kings. The Holy Spirit will come upon them for specific purposes, but he could leave them as well. But for us, the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. So we have to say, if we're talking about eternal God, who is there forever for us, and it is for a special purpose, but it is not limited. It is is for this special purpose that we are united to the person of Christ and So we have to say, if the Holy Spirit is coming to us, what benefit would that give us? Well, we already said the uniting of persons, right? He he took us out of Adam and united us to the person of Christ. But also, the Spirit becomes our competency and our capacity for God. Because He is God. And there's a good scripture that talks about it, right? Here it is right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I don't know if you might have seen it this way or not. So it says, verse 9, However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. So then he goes on in verse 11, For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. (laughs) Now, the thoughts of God are, are God. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean the spirit of the person? He's talking about the person. Who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In other words, that person. Right, the inside person of that person. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except God, right? The Spirit of God. Same thing, right? So God has three persons. 
the Father, the Son, we already saw, and the Spirit of God. That's the person of the Spirit. That person, watch this. What we have received, verse 12, is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given. There's competency. We couldn't understand who God was on the level of what God has to show us because people always say, well, God is way up there and we're just way down here. How could we possibly understand what God is and who he is? How could we know? Are we so finite? We're just so dumb. We're just so crazy. How would we know what God is thinking? Well, we have the spirit of God. That's how we know. And then verse 13, this is what we speak. Speak, teach, right? This is how, what we talk about. What do you mean what we talk about? That which is freely given to us. Not from the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we can know these things. Not words taught us by human wisdom, but words taught us by the spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. He even gives us the words and the understanding of how to use those words so that he conveys the thoughts of God for us. We have this forever, not just, oh, just now while we're on the battlefield, Holy Spirit helps us out. But no, he, this is, once we get to the eternal state, we will have this competency and this capacity forever. Who is the Spirit? He's God. Right? Well, I needed to make sure we understood that, right? The indwelling of all members of the Trinity speak of that oneness. And, th and that's the benefit. And you said, well, what is the benefit of the Holy Spirit? Well, there it is. There it is. What is the benefit of the Father? Okay, we know who the Father is because of Father's plan. What is the benefit of Christ? Okay, we're identified with the person of Christ so that we share everything he has. Who is he? We could go on, right? There's much more to be said. Point B, the world will know, right? This is, this is that phrase that kept coming up, right? So that the world may know that you have sent me, right? The world may know. God is very proud of what he accomplished. He's very proud. And how he accomplished it in the church. Imagine that. Now, just think about that for a minute. Think about God. And when you think about God and receiving glory, and the Father is going to be glorified, the Son is going to be glorified in all of this, just to know that God, not only is he satisfied, he, do, he doesn't lean forward and he said, well, we got work to do, we got work to do, we got a lot of work to do. He's leaning forward, busy doing the work, busy facilitating the work. But at some point, he's going to get what he wants. And he's going to sit back now. And he's going to be satisfied. Yep, the work is done. Did, I, did it get done the right way? Yes. Did all the objectives, were they accomplished? Yes. Were, were, were all the people in the church that I needed to call called? Yes, they were called. Are they justified? Are they now? They're all glorified? Okay, I'm satisfied. But then there's another thought in all of this. When he, 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 He's more than satisfied. He's proud. He's proud of what he accomplished in this plan. He gets to enjoy the things that he set out to do now. He didn't just say, I just want to bring many sons into glory. What for? Because I just like sons and I'm just going to have them come into glory. No, there's a specific reason that the father wants out of this. Uh, there's, there's a goal, an end point that he is after when he brings many sons in the glory. You satisfy something in the Father that when he finally gets you where he wanted, uh, you know, for all the, the dynamics and the, the, the mechanics and the, all the things that we have talked about, when all of that's done, the Father's going to be proud. He's going to want to show you off to the world. And this is, this is another way to say it in Ephesians 2. I know you know where I'm going. Ephesians 2, 6 and 7. Where he says this. 
And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We didn't do anything. It's grace. His kind, he, All he did was lavish grace upon us. That's all he did. And he's so proud of what he has accomplished in Christ. So there, that verse, I don't know if you've read it that way and you've seen that God is proud of this. He wants to show us off. I used to say it was his trophy case. You know, you ever go over somebody's house and they and you're looking around, but they direct you toward a certain thing. They say, oh, I just need you to look at that. This, I'm proud of this. There's this mantle over the fireplace where I have all my trophies. And let me show you. This one I did when I was over here, and I, this one over here I did when I was over there. Right. So all his accomplishments, he's proud. And where will he show off all these accomplishments? And well, 6 and 7 says it, because it's all, the ration, all to rational created beings. But in also, in Romans 8, 22 and 21 and 22, he talks about how all of this will come through. I'll just read it. I know I read it last week, but boy, I think it deserves another look. So 8, he says that the creation, this is 21, that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We affect the universe. It's not just, oh, uh, effect of New Jersey. All of New Jersey will know. No, it's not just all of the world. All of the world will know. But it's all of creation itself. Because remember, creation itself is what God used to bring many sons into glory. So when God gets those sons... Creation benefits from that. We know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So, but what is it waiting for? The children of... Is it waiting for Christ? Nope. It says the children of God. Now, the children of God are identified with Christ. Remember, Christ said, I, this is, you are in me and I am you, and glory has come to me through them. The whole thing hopefully ties together. And I'm hoping that you see that. Before we move past these points that of interest, these highlights in John chapter 17. Let's keep going. So he's proud of what he accomplished and how he accomplished in, in the church. Imagine that. Point C. The world will see the eternal purpose of the Father through us. Remember, it is not a mystery anymore. So now, we always talk about it as a mystery because Paul talks about it as a mystery. But it's really not a mystery anymore. It hasn't been a mystery for over 2,000 years. That's how long this information has been revealed. And yet, you have to say that there is an enemy of God and he is busy suppressing this information as best he can. However, God will accomplish his purpose. I know he will. And Satan can't stop God from accomplishing his purpose. But we can look around and see, yeah, there is an enemy of God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It is against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. All of that we have to contend with in accomplishing the Father's eternal purpose. But it's not a mystery anymore. God didn't... When Paul talks about it was a mystery, and he's a Pharisee. He was, anyway. He's not anymore. He was a Pharisee. And he's talking about this information was a mystery. It was never seen in Israel. Nobody in Israel ever saw this information. It was hidden from them. It was not about them at all. It's about us. So he only uses that to show how this information is distinguished from that information Israel was given, the revelation they were given. 
So what do people see, as I, I read in Ephesians 2, 6, and 7, when they look at us raised up in Christ, seated in him with the heaven, in the heavenly realms and so forth, that he's showing the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What is all that to say that they see? Not only do we understand the eternal purpose of the Father, but that the world will understand the eternal purpose of the Father. It's not a mystery anymore. Point D. Christ is the image of the invisible God. So it says in Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. This is a unique role. The visible Christ must reveal the invisible God. When we talk about the invisible God, do we just now see the Father in focus because of Christ? It's not about just that. It's about the Father's plan, right? Everything is about the plan. Just to know the members of the Trinity. Okay, I know there's a Trinity. I know there are members. Why do we know that? Because the Father's plan is revealed through what God has done here. The purpose of the Father is in us, right? This is when people see us, they will understand what God was doing before the creation of all things. So, so we, we understand how he did it. Christ is the image of the invisible God. This unique role, uh, the visible Christ must reveal the invisible God. And what do we do? We share in this unique role. The church shares in the visible revelation of who God is. We share that with with Christ. Christ, that's his job, but we are just sharing it. That's part of what we do as well. So as we adhere, understand, believe, trust, and allow the Father and Christ to manifest in us, to be at home in our hearts, that is a revelation of the Father's eternal purpose. It was given before time began. Point, that's point D. Point E, the Father's special love is expressed in his choosing us and placing us in Christ before time began. Wow. So that now love is introduced as well. And what we should understand in that is that the Father choosing you, we could, and I used to always say, well, why did the Father choose us? Why did, and then if you look at the Greek words, he didn't choose us because of who we were. He didn't choose us because we're somebody special. He didn't choose us because he saw something down the road that we would have some special goodness in us. Nope. He found us in Adam, dead in our transgressions and sins in which we, there was nothing we had to offer God. God's choosing of us is only represented by his love. He says, I love them. He says he loved Christ. What did that mean? It means he chose Christ. Christ is, was the one who was designated to fulfill the Father's purposes. When it says he chose us to be in him, it is to say that he loved us. In love, he predestined us and and chose us to be adopted as his sons and so forth. Him preferring us over others. The choosing represents the Father investing in us. The Father saying, I'm going to allow these people to fulfill this important mission that I have for them. He did all this before the creation of the world. He placed us in Christ. Verse 3, we haven't even read where it says that every... Let me just read it. And then... uh, Our time is getting down the road here. Ephesians, here it is, 3. No, no, it's 1-3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So there, he's already said that we're in Christ, but verse 4 
he didn't really need to have verse 4 because, because he already said he blessed us in the heavenly realms in Christ. So verse 4 is given because of the detail. Every point needs to be hashed out so that there's no question. You can't deviate from the left to the left or to the right. He, he the Father, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. So love means the Father committed all of this to us. He committed all of this to Christ. And now we share. It's not just enough for him to commit it to Christ. It's also a part that we now share in the fact that we are the church. We are the fullness of who Christ is. So, so it's without him, without him, we certainly are not going to be anything. But without us, he can't fulfill the Father's eternal purpose. No doubt about it. So where are we here? Um, I already read Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. But you know the Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then 30, where he says, For those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. It's all right here. Point F, we're going to close with point F. Our love for the Father is expressed in our humility, commitment. So we already talked about the Father's love for us, how it's expressed, and Him choosing us and placing us in Christ before time began. But our love for the Father is expressed in our humility, right? That was the first thing that Christ realized when He realized He was on the ground. It says he humbled himself and became obedient. Right? This is in Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself. Right? It's the first thing we can do to express not only our understanding, that's the humility, of the Father's plan. Once we understand it, we can commit to it. We can, our, it shows our devotion and our dedication to learning and living according to his glorious plan. That's what it would show. John 14, 31 shows how Christ says, I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. John 15, 8 through 10. Let's just look at that real quick because it speaks about us. 15, 8 through 10. This is my, to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So there, it's the same thing that Christ had, the same expectations of him that the Father had, is now the same expectations of us, that we have the same humility, the same commitment, the same devotion and dedication to to learning and, and walking in the truth that has been revealed to us through the plan. It's the same thing. Our love speaks of that. We can't think, oh, our, our love speaks of us obeying some Mosaic law or some, um, something else. It, our love is reflected in how we respond to the plan, the Father's eternal purpose, not how we respond to, you know, just, you know, we, either where we've sinned and we didn't sin or we... It is more than that. It is a direction to our lives and our spiritual lives. It's a direction to it. So we're going to have to stop. We'll stop here. And I think we have a nice chunk of, of next week when we go through John 17, 24 through 26 that we could probably uh, tackle. We'll see how it goes. No rush. But um, there's a lot to consider as these verses define our spiritual life. These verses not only define our spiritual life, but the part that the Holy Spirit plays in our in, in what God has equipped us with, who we end up being as a result of those the competencies and capac the capacity 
that the Holy Spirit has brought to our lives. It is absolutely unique. As we have said, we're going to continue more of this thought next week. Uh, it is who we are, and so we need to take our time to examine it. Let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity we've had to look at the detail of what you have given us here in your word. I recognize the prayer uh, that Christ prayed in our behalf and mentioned us by name. Each of us have been chosen. And we are so thankful as we recognize, but we can go beyond thankfulness and appreciation for your call. We can love you back. And we can show that love by how we respond in this age to this information, to what you have told us who we are in life. How we respond is further how we can show our love for your plan for your purpose, what's important, the highest priority that you have. So we thank you for those who are listening, those who are here, Father, in this church, and the fact that we can talk about these things openly in the way you have, just as you have said here, is a blessing for us. And the fellowship that we have here, it has, it, like no other, so we, we're not fellowshipping because we necessarily are so, we get along so well. We are fellowshipping because we're here because of what you have said, these words about us. And, and our belief in your son and what you've made of us in all of this. We thank you that there are other believers that we can fellowship with who have seen and have admired and revered your words as well. So, Father, I pray for this church. I pray for those who are involved and associated with us. Pray for their families. Pray whatever difficulties and sicknesses in their lives, you would bear that responsibility for them. That they can keep their focus and their attention on the very things that drove our Lord when he was here, that we can have that kind of humility and commitment to your plan. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.